Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community, and we would love the opportunity to connect with you in person. One way to do that is to join us in Dallas, September 23rd and the 24th, at the National Faith Driven Investor Conference at Watermark Community Church in Dallas, Texas. We'll be recording live episodes and joined by friends like Andy Crouch, Finney Corvilla, and the leaders of this movement. Go to our website to register. While you're there, please send us any thoughts that you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Hosts and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Go back to creation, fall, redemption again. God creates a world that's good, including economic life. The fall happens. Yeah. We all know this. But somehow what happens to American Christians is we think the fall happens to the family. We think the fall happens to government. We think the fall happens to, well, I don't want to say the Green Bay Packers because they are God's team. The fall happens to the New England Patriots. The fall happens to everything except for the Packers and the economy. And we we take whatever the economy delivers to us as normative, as it's untouchable, and it's just not true. The fall really happened. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Many of you, our next guest really doesn't need an introduction. Brian Fickard. He is one of the best-selling authors of When Helping Hurts and several other books. He's the president of Chalmers Center for Economic Development, a research and training center that's dedicated to helping groups declare the kingdom of God by bringing economic development and spiritual transformation to the poor. He's been a part of some of the most fascinating new books that tackle some of the deep issues and ideas of gleaning and how it affects our view of faith-driven investing. It's an idea that they say is practicing the king's economy. He's on our podcast today to share a little bit about what they've learned in the process of writing these new books. So let's just jump in now with Brian and Henry and William. Welcome back to the Faith-Driven Investor Podcast. This is time for us to get together and hear from some really, really cool people that are doing some amazing things in God's kingdom that can give us a perspective as investors about how to think about investing God's money. Today, I have William Norville on as our co-host with me. And many of you will know William from the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast that we host with Rusty Roof, where we have now done about 65 of those episodes. So William and I have done a lot of this together. It's great being back with William. And we're looking at a different subject matter with a little bit of a different audience, but there's a lot of overlap. So many of you probably already know William, but William, awesome to have you with us. It's good to be here and it's good to be able to beta test. So, you know, if people tune out, we can really clearly see which of the hosts uh, people right. weren't excited about. That's like, exactly oh, right. just Henry and William. I guess I'm done with that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, I anticipate good things from that. And I especially anticipate good things, though, because I think the deck is stacked a little bit in your favor, William, because we have Brian Fickert on as our guest. Amen. And you can't go wrong with that. Many of our audience will know of Brian and his work at the Chalmers Center, which we're going to hear about here in a little bit. But when we talk about investing, it assumes that there's an economy that we invest in. 
And a lot of us have taken classes on the economy and we've learned about microeconomics and macroeconomics and some of the different rules and the things that give us a sense for things like supply and demand. And that guides some of the way we think about investing. We thought that before we went too much further on in our series on faith-driven investing, that it'd be really helpful to hear from an economist, somebody who's an expert in this world that not only has a really good view about the way that the economy works and the way that finance works, but in particular, the way that God's economy works. And I can't think of anybody better suited to talk about that than Brian Fickert. So Brian, huge honor to have you on. Great to be with you guys today. And let's go ahead and let's just jump right into it. There is an economy that's out there and there are people out there in the marketplace. They're buying and selling products. They're raising capital. They're raising equity. They're raising debt. Give us just an overview of the space that we all find ourselves in every day. And is it the space that we're taught about in college? What is it that we've learned in business school or in undergraduate that you think really is important for us to know about? And then what, if anything, do you think that God has to say about it all? Well, that's a great opening question and a broad one. I've got to try to answer that concisely. I think at the core of the problem is this, that most of us are taught in business school or in our economics courses that the economy is just kind of this neutral thing out there. It's kind of like gravity. And we take it as a given. It's like a fixed law of nature. It is kind of, to some degree, morally neutral in the way that gravity is. And what we do is we learn the rules of the game. We learn the rules of supply and demand. We learn the rules of production and consumption. We learn the rules of this system, rules that somehow are fixed in nature in the same way, again, that gravity is. And we play by those rules and we achieve certain kinds of outcomes. And then we go and live the rest of our lives. And in the rest of our lives, we're often concerned about all kinds of moral questions. We're concerned about things like love, how we raise our children, what does human flourishing look like? Uh, those of us who are believers are interested in questions like how do we glorify God? What does it mean to love and to serve him all of our days? And yet we tend to sort of segment off the global economy as, again, this kind of morally neutral thing that we just kind of receive that nobody is responsible for in the same way that nobody's responsible for the laws of nature. And the problem is that's just not true. The basic storyline of scripture is of creation, fall, and redemption. And, and, and that storyline applies to all dimensions of God's creation. It applies to the family, it applies to government, it applies to baseball, and it applies to economic life. There's a goodness that was created, it's fallen, and Christ's redemption applies to that thing. And as human beings, we are morally responsible for what we do in this dimension of God's creation. We create the kind of economy that we function in. Now, many of us don't feel like we have a lot of moral agency in it. We feel like it's all this great big thing that's out there. And to some degree, we are paralyzed by the immensity of it, of course. But there is a moral obligation of human beings to create this sphere of life in a way that glorifies God, just as we would in our family, in government, and anything else. And so recognizing our moral culpability, recognizing yeah. that there are ethical standards that God has established that might be different from those we were taught in school is a really important starting point. Okay, so bridge on that. Tell us what is different about God's economy 
than what maybe we were taught about in school? Yeah, it's a terrific question. So the Bible starts with this idea that the earth is the Lord's. <laughs> uh, Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And so it's fundamentally his. He's the owner of absolutely everything. And we are created as stewards, as vice rulers or vice regents, if you will. And our task is to manage his stuff. Economics starts with a completely different framework. And this was what's going on in your introductory econ courses. Now, I teach economics, and in my experience, is that the business students in the class are not equally as excited about economics as I am. Some of them are, but many of them <laughs> prefer accounting or marketing or, and so on. But a few of them really like economics. But what you learned, any of your listeners today who have studied business or economics, what you learned in chapter one of your very first economics textbook, and the teacher glossed over this and you didn't pay attention to it, but you learned that economists believe in something called a positive normative distinction. And that's as follows. Positive statements are statements of fact, statements that are incontrovertibly true. Economists argue that regardless of our religious presuppositions, regardless of our worldview, Muslims and Hindus and Jews and atheists and agnostics can all agree on certain things. Those are positive statements. Normative statements are statements about what should be or what ought to be. Statements that describe the way things should be. And those kinds of statements involve all kinds of value judgments, all kinds of religious convictions. And what economists claim is that they only make positive statements, not normative statements. So again, a positive statement is a statement of fact. Uh, I'm seated at a table. My iPhone next to me is black. Uh, those are positive statements. Normative statements are things like all students should study hard. Everybody should root for God's team, the Green Bay Packers. Whenever the word should shows up, whenever the word should shows up, it's normative. And again, economists claim that they're only making positive statements. They're just describing the way the world really is. And so they're arguing that the entire field is value neutral. It's morally neutral. And this feeds into the larger narrative I mentioned a few minutes ago, that the economy itself is morally neutral. It just is. And the problem is that if you study economics at all, you will soon find that economists enter into the normative all the time. Every economics textbook will ask the following question. Is a minimum wage a good or a bad policy? Should we use tariffs or quotas? Should we use capital controls? The should question pops up all the time in economic analysis. And what's going on is economists have an implicit ethical standard that they never state explicitly. And whenever you have an ethical standard, it emanates from some God. So I don't know if you're tracking with all this. What I'm arguing is that the discipline has in it an implicit ethical standard that reflects the values, the teachings of an undefined God that's buried deep within the field. And so my view is that as we are exposed to the discipline of economics, as we're exposed to its applications in business, we are actually often being ushered into unknowingly the worship of a false god. And that false god is not the god of the Bible. It's a different god. So you're talking about uh, positive statements and normative statements. The normative statements are the things that there should be, which implies some sort of an ethical standard, which, as you say, kind of points to some sort of a agreed-upon ethic, which is 
a god. There's something that they end up worshiping, some sort of a moral high ground they're pointing to, which if you point to a moral high ground, it has to be rooted in something. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that they're pointed back toward the God of the universe, the God that we all worship because of the rules, or are they pointing to a God of their own creation that might be at odds with the way that God has set up the world and the economy? That's the great question. And so it comes down to this. The implicit ethical standard in economics is this idea of Pareto efficiency. Uh, Some of you might recall having studied this idea of consumer surplus and producer surplus and total surplus. It's the same idea. And the basic idea is that an economy should always maximize mutually beneficial transactions. Now, that sounds like an okay thing at one level. And so think about being in school. My mother always packed me bologna sandwiches and my friend's mother always packed him peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And after a while, I got sick of bologna sandwiches and he got sick of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And so we would trade and he felt he was better off and I felt I was better off. And so we both felt we were better off. And should the teacher have prevented us from trading our sandwiches, we would say, man, that's really stupid. What's wrong with letting Brian and his friend trade their sandwiches so they're each better off? Well, that sounds okay, but when you really think about what's going on is two autonomous, self-centered, materialistic individuals, a creature that economists refer to as homo economicus, a highly self-centered, highly materialistic, completely autonomous robot is being referred to as the arbiter of right and wrong. So if two highly self-interested, highly materialistic, highly autonomous creatures, two homo economicuses (laughs) decide to trade something, to prevent that from happening is bad. Because in essence, what we are saying is that homo economicus is God. But clearly that's not true. There's all kinds of transactions that people voluntarily engage in that aren't good for them. A cocaine transaction. There is a buyer of cocaine and a seller of cocaine. Each party in that transaction believes they are engaging in something that makes each of them better off. But as believers, we would say that that's an immoral transaction. We would have a different reference point. And so we would reject the idea that homo economicus is God. Now, most of our listeners would say, well, cocaine's different. But start to just move on from there. The price of any good or service is determined by supply and demand. And so, in essence, the price reflects the values of Homo economicus. And so, when I go to the store and a Bible is, I don't know, $5 and a CD is $10. That reflects the values of homo economicus. But do I think that God gets out of bed in the morning and goes, yeah, I think my Bible is worth $5 and the CD is worth $10. I don't think God looks at those prices as normative. But in economics, the prices are always normative because they come from homo economicus's values, his preferences, his goals, and those are upheld as God. The God of economics and business is homo economicus. So the price is set based on supply and demand. I've heard you talk about the difference between an economy of abundance and an economy of scarcity, and that we are taught early on in microeconomics and macroeconomics to believe in this concept of scarcity. And then you've got this guy who takes five loaves and two fish and feeds 5,000. So that doesn't 
seem to rhyme with scarcity. What does that mean for us when we look at homo economicus? What does that look like for us in the economy? Riff on that a little bit. That's a tough one. That's a really hard one. And I sometimes get into fights with my co-authors about this. There are some folks who work in the space of theology and economics who really argue that economists focus on scarcity is wrong and that we should always have this sense of abundance. And I appreciate that at one level. I think we want to be careful with that. The world really is finite. The world is finite. And there are some people in conservative Christian circles, and I consider myself one of those sorts of creatures, who when they hear people talking about a world being finite, they kind of flip out and go, these are environmental wackos. Well, the world really is finite. Only God is infinite. And so there is to some degree scarcity. There is some degree finiteness. But having said that, the narrative of mainstream economics is to always focus on scarcity and to pit various economic agents against one another. So we're all kind of in this fight for resources. We're in this competitive kind of drive for defeating our enemies. And the narrative of scripture is fundamentally different from that. So we have a finite world, but the narrative of scripture is one of abundance in the sense that God has given us a finite yet flourishing world, has given human beings the capacity to develop that world, and together we are to steward that world for the benefit of one another. And so it's not a pitting of ourselves against one another. It's more of this idea of, and my co-author Michael Rhodes has coined this, it's more the idea of a potluck that the horizon in the biblical model is of a potluck in which everybody is bringing something to the table, rich and poor, all bringing the fruits of their labors to a banquet feast. And we are enjoying the fruits together of our co-laboring in community together. And so it's not a pitting of people against each other. It's more of a sense of humanity is all in this together. We are jointly co-stewarding God's good creation to all bring something to the banquet feast at the end. So help us to understand what does that mean as an investor? So I'll take a step backwards. It feels like you're keeping a couple of different things in tension, maybe much in the same way that somebody might put predestination and free will kind of in this tension. (laughs) And so you have here, you've got, yes, on one hand, there's a finiteness and there is an economics of scarcity that helps to impact things like prices. And yet on the other hand, we worship this God of abundance that did take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000. We also have this kind of sense of this normative values of what we should transact in, what we should value that might be different than what other market forces might. So maybe we shouldn't value cocaine the same way, or maybe we should put more of an emphasis on different transactions. And then you also bring in this whole concept of everybody has something to bring in to the economy. It's not like there's only some people that have the resources and the assets. Everybody has something to bring to bear, which connotes that there are different types of currencies. So I may have investment assets and I may have money and I may have all these different things, but you're suggesting maybe that the guy in West Africa, who's a farmer, he has something to bring into a transaction as well. And maybe the current economy we have doesn't value that the way that God would. 
Help us. Is that? That's excellent. Sorry to interrupt you. Get me excited. Go back to creation, fall, redemption again. God creates a world that's good, including economic life. The fall happens. Yeah. We all know this. But somehow what happens to American Christians is we think the fall happens to the family. We think the fall happens to government. We think the fall happens to, well, I don't want to say the Green Bay Packers because they are God's team. The fall happens to the New England Patriots. The fall happens to everything except for the Packers and the economy. And we we take whatever the economy delivers to us as normative, as it's untouchable, and it's just not true. The fall really happened. And so I don't want listeners here to think that I think that markets are all worse than government intervention or something like that. It's not that at all. What I'm arguing for is rather than holding up the economy as this sort of untouchable God and saying everything else has fallen, especially government and government intervention, that's really bad. That's all fallen. What we ought to do is just say, It's all created good, and the fall has happened, all of it, and so we should all just chill out a bit. And we shouldn't expect anything to produce some kind of utopian thing. We should say in every particular setting, huh, where might the market solve a problem? Where might other kinds of associations solve the problem? Where might government solve the problem? And stop pitting things against one another as though some are untouchable and some are fallen. It's a mistake. Okay. I don't know if that helps or not, but well, I think it does. But so our audience are investors. They are some of them institutional investors. Some of them are investing their own proceeds, and we all are investors. We're all investing what God has asked us to steward. Question for you is: In light of your looking at the economy and the way that investors participate in that economy, and that that economy can't be held up as a god, but is an institution, is a system that is also subject to the fall. How might we as investors understand that reality and how we as investors participate in the economy maybe differently because we have a different understanding of the economy? What might that be conceptually and then maybe even just some like specific examples? Yeah, so let me work out conceptual a little bit first because there's something that I don't think I've gotten into very well yet. Okay, again, I'm an economist. My specialty within economics is poverty And within the field of poverty, one of my loves is the topic of economic growth. I have a whole course just on economic growth. How can we make economic growth happen? One of my favorite books is a book by an economist named William Easterly called The Elusive Quest for Growth, Economists' Adventures and Misadventures in the Tropics. It's a great book. I recommend it to anybody. Economists believe in growth. And the reason economists believe in growth goes back to our fundamental notion as economists of what human flourishing looks like. If the human being is this autonomous, material, self-interested creature, then human flourishing looks like ever-increasing levels of consumption. And the only thing that constrains us from having unlimited consumption is our incomes. And so to the economist, the goal is more consumption, that goal is achieved, through increasing people's incomes. Well, how do incomes go up? We need economic growth. And the truth of the matter is, at one level, that story had unparalleled success. Western civilization is the richest civilization ever to walk the face of the planet. Western civilization has eradicated more poverty than any civilization throughout human history ever has. As globalization is exporting the institutions of capitalism, 
Western-style capitalism in particular to the rest of the world, we are seeing more rapid reductions in material poverty than we've ever seen throughout human history. I'm very much involved in nonprofit work. It's not because of all these great nonprofits. It's not because of all the social entrepreneurs out there, as much as I love that audience. It's because of macroeconomic growth. China adopted Western institutions and their economy has exploded. India has done the same thing. Their economy has exploded. More poverty has been wiped out in the past 30 years through economic growth than in all of the rest of human history combined. Many economists believe that should such growth continue, there will be nobody living, nobody in the entire world living below the extreme poverty line of $1.90 per day 30 years from now. This is an incredible story. And I don't want us to lose sight of that story. It's an amazing story. Western-style capitalism is unparalleled in terms of simply getting people above the poverty line in a purely material sense. Yep. Here's the problem. I think all of us can sense that something's gone wrong in America. Yeah. We can feel it. Something has gone profoundly wrong. The family is breaking down. Our communities are breaking down. The political process is an absolute disaster. We've lost a sense of trust. It seems like racial tensions are skyrocketing. And so we're left with what's often called a paradox within economics, the paradox of growth. And that paradox is we have unprecedented economic growth. Economists believe that should give us ever-increasing levels of happiness. And what we're actually observing is happiness in America is actually stable or declining. And so how could it be that we've got unprecedented wealth and declining happiness? Well, it turns out America is not unique in this. There's research being done right now by economists. And what they're finding is that as economic growth is proceeding in such places as China, happiness is actually declining. Now, happiness is a fairly subjective kind of measure. You ask people how happy you are on a scale of one to three, and, and people give you an answer. And, you know... My own culture, I'm a Dutch American. The Dutch are always miserable. So if you ask Dutch people, you know, how happy are you? Well, you're always miserable. So it's very subjective, right? But if you look at more objective measures, it turns out there's all kinds of measures that show that as our incomes are going up, our flourishing is going down. If you look at indicators of mental health, depression and anxiety amongst young people is skyrocketing in America. And it's not actually a recent phenomenon. It's been traced back to at least the 1930s. And so the story of Western capitalism is one of unprecedented economic growth, lifts people out of material poverty. It doesn't seem to be conducive to full human flourishing. Let me just keep going here for a second. This is a long yeah. answer. I think God gives us a different vision of human flourishing in his word than what the field of economics does. Instead of this rational, material, autonomous agent, the Bible gives us a view of the human being as a highly integrated body and soul. What's happening to us spiritually affects us physically. What happens to us physically affects us spiritually. In addition, the Bible gives us a vision of a human being as a highly relational creature. We are wired, deeply wired for relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the rest of creation. And so in contrast, this purely physical being, the human being is a composite body-soul relational creature. 
And as a result, what human flourishing looks like from a biblical perspective is fundamentally different from what human flourishing looks like from the perspective of mainstream economic thinking. And so the kinds of institutions that we should have, the kinds of ways of being in the world that we ought to be pursuing ought to be institutions and systems, including work environments that foster human flourishing for this body-soul relational thing as opposed to this homo economicus thing. Okay, so this is is important. Sorry, uh, go ahead. This is where the rubber meets the road as an investor. Okay, so I think that a Christ-following investor with an understanding of Scripture can understand that there is a more complex view of flourishing than just material wealth and that we need to be investing with flourishing in mind. Tell us if you can, and I know this is the $10 million question, but how does that mean that we as investors, Christian investors, might invest differently? And so let me give you some examples about the things that are swimming around in my mind and maybe in the, in the minds of some of our listeners. Do we invest in different companies that promote flourishing because that's what honors God and that's what does deliver happiness and joy? And by doing that, should we then expect that because that's the way God designed the economy that will get better returns? Or do we enter into those transactions where maybe we'd invest in flourishing, knowing full well that the flourishing is more important than the returns? And so therefore, we should think about our investing outside of the limited realm of homo economicus and this God and this other thing that is the economy. How do we think about this when we're deploying and placing investment capital? That's the question. So the great commandment is to love God and love our neighbors. And those commands ought to be the transcendent guiding principles in everything we do, including our business lives. And so we've got to enter into the arena of business, into the arena of investing, into the arena of the global economy saying, how do I love God? How do I love my neighbors well? And so that ethic has to be the dominant ethic, and it has to affect the nature of what's happening in the factory. We have to ask about the quality of work, the very nature of work that we're fostering in that factory. We have to talk about what is the the telos, what is the goal of the factory that we're communicating in our decision-making and with our workers. All kinds of additional issues we can talk about. So the short answer to your question is, I think in our investing, we ought to be seeking more than the bottom line of greater profits. You've asked the question, should we be excited about the fact that if we do things God's way, we might yield a higher financial return? Uh, The truth of the matter is, I don't know that we'll get a higher financial return. I've heard arguments that we will. I don't think we actually know that. And I don't think that ought to be the driver in the decision making. I think we ought to go in and do the morally right thing. If that yields us lower financial returns, I think that's okay. And so I would argue for multiple bottom lines in our businesses, a diversity of stakeholders in how we're analyzing who's being impacted and how they're being impacted. It's just a different set of goals. It's a different way of achieving the goals. It's a different set of metrics. And that may yield a lower financial return in a fallen world. And I think we should be okay with that. That's interesting. As you think about, so I'm going to try to get fairly practical, right? So I'm, I'm a 36-year-old guy working in private equity, right? So that sounds great. But what if someone 
doesn't own their own fund? What if someone doesn't have their own capital? They have diverse shareholders. They have diverse people counting on them where, you know, that sounds great. That sounds interesting. But honestly, if you don't give me a 20% return, I really don't care. Like, you know, so, so walk into that person's world yeah. who's trying to serve God, who, you know, picks up practicing the King's economy, your book and says, I'm, I'm all in, but I don't have options to sort of run this show myself. How do I lean into that? How do I walk into that as a practitioner? Well, first of all, brother, I don't have this all figured out. And if you look at my own life, yeah, if you look at my own life, you'll see all kinds of inconsistencies and compromises everywhere. So I don't want to Amen. It's not easy. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I don't hear you saying that. It's really hard. And, and, and I'm just thinking for an encouragement for someone who's who's listening and buying in and just kind of where do you start, you know, because I'm sure the answer is not throw up your hands, right, and give up. So it's really interesting. I've had the chance to interact with some Christians in the United Kingdom. And I'll just mention the organization. There's an organization I like a lot called Tier Fund. It's a Christian relief and development agency that's headquartered in the United Kingdom. And when I visited them a number of years ago, I said to the CEO, what would your staff say are the biggest challenges they're facing? And they would say the biggest challenge they would say is uh, integrity. So I thought, man, what's wrong with these people? They're all stealing from the company. They're all, I don't know, uh, engaged in promiscuous sex or something outside of marriage. And so I'm, I'm viewing all the staff like people who ought to be arrested or something. And when I started to explore more deeply, I realized that what they meant by that was they wanted to live faithfully in every dimension of their lives, and they weren't so worried about impact. So let me give you an example. I turned 55 this week, and I got to tell you, I hate recycling. I hate it. And when I walk with the uh, empty bottle to the recycling can, in my head, what I'm saying to myself is, this is stupid. Because if I recycle, but Henry and William don't recycle, it's not going to make any difference or not. And I'm a busy guy. And I got a lot to do. And this is a stupid thing to worry about recycling when nobody else is going to do it. And it's going to have no impact whatsoever. And there's an opportunity cost of my time. And what my brothers and sisters in Tierfund would have said to me is, you're not living a life of integrity. Just do the right thing. Just do the right thing and don't worry about the impact. Just do the right thing. And so I'm increasingly trying to live that way in my personal life. And brother, I'll tell you, I am so messed up. I don't have this figured out. What do you do if you're a small investor like me? I don't have any power. I mean, I'm a professor. I don't have a lot of money. I put my money out there in mutual funds. I don't know what they're doing. I couldn't, I don't even know what, I've got my money in the moderate aggressive category. <laughs> it's, it's some panel of experts out there is investing my money and I'm getting a return and I'm hoping for a big return. And my brothers and sisters at Tier Fund would say to me, Brian, you're lacking integrity in that part of your life. And they would say, you've got to look at that a little bit more deeply. And you know what? I think they're right. And when I get around to having time to work on that, I will. And they would say something to me that I actually heard somebody at the lines Den say recently as well. And they would say to me something like this. You're acting like the wife of the mob boss. You're acting like the wife of the mob boss. You're not asking where the money comes from. The money just comes into the household and you're going to spend it morally yourself, but you're going to close your eyes to where the money's coming from. And you know what? I think that's a good analogy for how I'm functioning right now. 
And what exactly do I do with that? I don't know. But I've got to find other ways to invest my money. I've got to look for ways to live with greater integrity. It's really hard. But I'll tell you this. As I start to do that, it's changing who I am. I may not be changing the whole world when I recycle, but it's changing who I am. Because every time I walk that stupid recycling bin and I take the time to do it, I remember something. I'm not alone. It's not just about me. There are people in the majority world who've got plastic and other kinds of waste products being dumped on their heads because we're not recycling. And I should care about my brother and sister living in Togo right now. And so it's changing me. So, Brian, I have a sense that if you're into it at all, we're going to have you back on the program several times because there are just so many different things that we could talk about with regards to economy and the way that you've talked about things like it's so much of what we're going to want to do in investing with integrity is going to be able to invest in human flourishing, which is going to mean they're going to be investing in developing world, developing economies. And you've written so much on when helping hurts and in other books and publications and talks about a redefinition of what poverty really means and how that works. And so for those of us who are looking at impact investing, we're going to need to revisit a whole bunch of different topics some of them, and we're not going to get all of them on this on this episode, but just some quick things that come to mind are things like, how do we think about subsidy? How do we think about somebody who's making a handicraft and maybe that's really worth on the open market $3, but gosh, you know, these are women that have been rescued from sex trafficking. And if we pay them $5, then maybe that really helps them and gives them some level of dignity, but is it sustainable? Yep. Uh, how do we do that with our investing? Yep. Now, here's a company that probably should be a 10 million pre-money valuation, but because it's kind of the feel-good story of the year, they seem to be able to raise grant capital and yep. then other feel-good capital at a 15 pre. And maybe that means it takes them that much longer to grow into their valuation for the next round. There's so much complexity and there's no easy answers for any of this, which means that we have to have this kind of foundational understanding again about the way that the world works. Um, in our three or four minutes of time that we've got together on this episode, before we tackle many of those other subjects and other ones, is there anything that you'd want to leave us with? And this kind of like this, a listener is now saying, wow, gosh, this economy is maybe a little bit more complicated than I thought. Maybe the economy is, which I've just kind of left alone and said that this is the way the world works. Maybe that's also subject to the fall. Maybe that's just too narrow of a view of human flourishing. I think that people are looking at that. What's another thing that you leave our listener with to just think about, pray about as they're finishing their commute this morning or this afternoon that'll help them until the next time we talk? Great question. So I would just say this. I am of the opinion that we are being called by our Lord and Savior to improvise the story of his kingdom. You know, Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, that he's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that that's why he was sent. Jesus' primary mission is his kingdom. And we know from the scriptures from Isaiah chapter 9, for example, that this is a kingdom that brings justice and peace that is shalom over every square inch of the cosmos. The primary message of Jesus Christ is that he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are called to seek first that kingdom. There is no square inch in this entire universe over which Jesus does not declare mine uh, in the words of Abraham Kuyper. Now, I love that story. The reality of it is, it's not that clear how you go from the book of Deuteronomy and gleaning laws there to living in the 21st century in the global marketplace. The truth is, we don't know. 
we know the beginning of the story and we know the end of the story is a great banquet feast, a great potluck where we reign with Christ as restored priests and kings. We know the beginning. We know the end. There's a lot in the middle that we don't know very much about. And that's the chapter we're living right now. We just don't know exactly what it looks like. And so I am increasingly of the opinion that what we're called to do is to improvise the kingdom. We don't really know the details. We don't have the detailed script. What we have from the Bible are prompts. We have prompts that God gives us, and then we get to improvise around those prompts in all kinds of fun and creative ways. And so there's a sense in which we are improvising a kingdom, improvising a way of being in the world that we haven't fully seen yet. And I'm really finding a lot of freedom and joy in that. I'm a person who kind of wants to know the recipe and the formula, wants to have it all laid out. And I'm finding a lot of joy in this idea that I'm a new creature in Christ, that I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, that I'm united to the person of Jesus Christ, and I get to live into the grand story of his kingdom in new and creative ways. And there's a lot of freedom in that, that there is no script. There isn't one. We get to improvise. And I'm finding a lot of personal joy in living that way. I'm finding myself open to new questions, to new ways of thinking. I can think outside the box. I can fail. I can screw it up. I can try again. It's a different way of being in the world. Uh, Two quick commercials. We've got two books that have come out recently. One is called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And another one called Practicing the King's Economy, Honoring Jesus and How We Work, Earn, Spend, Save, and Give. Becoming Whole and Practicing the King's Economy. And in each of these books are really just a bunch of people who are trying to improvise the kingdom in new and creative ways. And so we don't have all the answers. We don't know what to do half the time. But we hope that the listeners today can join with us in this grand story of improvising God's kingdom in new and creative ways in our economic lives. Indeed. Brian, thank you so much for your transparency and for just being there with us. I mean, I know a lot of times people maybe listen to, I'll speak for myself, I listen to a podcast thing, man, these people have it all figured out. You know, they've got it all together. They've been put so much thought in this. I don't have time to put this much thought into it. Uh, Just thank you for that and reminding us that this is a great world and there's a lot going on. And we've got to just keep being obedient every day and trying to learn and become a better follower and a little more like Jesus every day and give grace to ourselves and give grace to others as they walk this journey with us. Thank you for bringing us back to that. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure and we look forward to, to next time. Thanks, brothers. It's been a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer, Justin Foreman, program director, Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdrags.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm -hmm.